And I have the privilege of introducing Mark Rowe to you. If you don't know Mark Rowe, you have the privilege of hearing him preach uh, this morning. Mark, how long have you been at Harvest? Probably three years now? Almost, almost four years. Almost four years. Yeah. And him and his wife, Holly, have two boys. Are you done with seminary yet or not? In May. In May. Yeah, okay, yeah, he'll be yeah. graduating in May from Trinity Evangelical Divinity S- School. So, Mark, come on up. We want to welcome you. Can we just put our hands together welcome Mark? Good morning. It's funny, I was looking at my notes, and um, the last time I preached was was two years ago. So, um, you know, it took two years to kind of unlearn some of that heresy that I preached that first time, kind of worked through the system. They were giving me another chance uh, two years later. So in that time, um, I've had a, a second son. So I, I remember preaching the day after Joshua's first birthday, and um, it, was, it was a hectic day, and I came and preached the next day. It's been two years since then. Joshua's three. Our second is, um, is one, and um, I'm finishing up seminary this May. So it's been, uh, it's been a long, long journey, made longer by those two, two boys. But... Um, <laughs> It's a privilege to, to be here. Um, if you could turn your Bibles to John chapter 1, John chapter 1, verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 14. John is the third gospel in the New Testament after Mark, Luke, after Luke, sorry, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the fourth gospel in the New Testament. I got to ask for my money back at seminary, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's on them. John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Can you pray with me one more time? God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that your word became flesh in Jesus Christ and dwelt among us. And through him we have seen your glory. God, I pray that these words would ring true in all of our hearts. Use me as your vessel. May I decrease, may you increase here in this place. Make this your sanctuary, O God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The main point of uh, my sermon is we long for God's presence, we long for his glory, and the only place we can find that is in Jesus Christ. One of the deepest longings of the human heart is, is to know someone and to be known by them, is it not? To, to know someone and to be known by them. These, this transcends categories of extroversion and introversion. These, this is the universal longing for deep and intimate communion with someone. And one of my... Um, favorite romantic comedies, Jerry Maguire, um, illustrates this point well. We, most of us should know the story. Jerry Maguire is a sports agent for the NFL. His, um, he has this epiphany. He stays up all night. He has this epiphany, and he, he writes up this manuscript. He tells his company the next day, and everyone thinks he's a freak. Um, he's basically telling them that he no longer wants to be this kind of salesperson agent, but he wants to be selfless. He wants to have a personal relationship with his players, um, his company doesn't respond well. They fire him, if you remember. He flips out, right? Um, he's left with one client, Rod Tidwell, 
Show Me the Money, Rod Tidwell, uh, played by Cuba Gooding Jr. And he starts a new agency with one employee, Dorothy Boyd, Renee Zellweger. That was kind of her, her uh, breakout movie for uh, Renee Zellweger. And it takes failure for Jerry to recognize that all of his life he's avoided relational intimacy, right? It's finally through his failure that he's able to let Rod into his life. He's able to let Dorothy into his life, and also Dorothy's son, um, Ray. And it's, it's through that failure that he can f- finally realize that he longs and craves for that deep intimacy, and he finally finds it in these relationships. And there's, there's one iconic scene where he approaches Dorothy in that room full of uh, divorcees, right? And he says to Renee Zellweger, you, you complete with me. That's, uh, that's not my favorite scene. My, my favorite scene is actually um, this one that I want to show you. Um, I've got a video of it. It's, it's kind of grainy. I just downloaded it from YouTube, but um, hopefully you can see it okay. That is one of the most iconic bromance scenes in all of modern film history. Rod, Rod Cubigan Jr., he comes out, he, he makes the winning touchdown grab. If you remember, he's uh, doing his brain dance moves in the middle of the field. He's spinning on his head. He's never showed that kind of emotion before. And the game effectively revitalizes his career. He's kind of in the sunset years of his career. He's, he's winding down, but that one is the one that wins him his contract eventually. Um, he comes out of that locker room. He, he's been craving this attention for his whole career. He, he's finally getting it. But all he can ask is, where's, where's Jerry? Where's my agent? Right? Jerry and Rod, they hug and cry together. That's unheard of in a sports agent and player relationship. It's just completely unheard of. The other rival agent, it's funny, he goes up to the other player and he's like, can I get a hug too? And the guy's like, don't touch me. Right? Um, but everyone, that's the, that's the kind of intimacy that I'm talking about. Everyone, when I see that, that scene, I want to hug someone right now. You know, I just... I also long, I think we all long, it's, it resonates deep within, we long for that kind of relational intimacy. But of course, the human relationships in moments like these are fleeting, and they're only echoes of, of the deep intimacy that we can only get from the divine, right? It's only through the one who made us and knows us and fulfills us like no spouse, friend, or child can, where we can find ultimate belonging and sense of deep relationship. I, I have two points today. One is I'm going to zoom out from John chapter 1, 14. I'm going to zoom out and kind of take a wide camera lens view from Genesis to Revelation, kind of tracing out um, the theme of God dwelling among us and how John chapter 1, verse 14 kind of fits into that large picture. And then in the second half, I'm going to zoom in to John 1, 14 and kind of look at the immediate context of this verse and kind of see from a different angle what it teaches us about God dwelling among his people. So, if you could just hold your finger in John chapter 1, verse 14, I'll be referring to it here and there. But just zooming out for a moment, Genesis through Revelation, I think the, 
maybe the most significant theme in all the Bible is really that theme, God dwelling among us. That, that quote that God says in one form or another, he says, I will be their God and they will be my people. That's, I would argue that's maybe the most important theme of the Bible. From beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, it's a story of how God wants to be with his people, but how man rebels. And the whole time, God is just trying to fix and reverse what humans made bad. In the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it's the account of how God created the world and everything in it. He created this garden called Eden, and there he placed the first two human beings, Adam and Eve. I was thinking about why God placed Adam and Eve in a garden, and just from my personal experience, when Holly and I, we were living in New York, and when we started thinking about family, I think when most people started thinking about family, they moved to the burbs, right, generally. Um, they moved to a burbs, and I think for us, we, were, we moved to Trinity. We were living in a 500-square-foot, one-bedroom apartment. Uh, we didn't really have much in that space. We moved to a townhome that we live in now. We've got assessments that we pay um, every month, and so we... We don't know what it's like to have a garden, but when I go to other families' homes and we look in the backyard, everyone has, everyone has a garden, right? There, there's a sense of permanence to having a garden. I mean, if, if you're transient like us and you're kind of going through place to place, you're not going to start a garden. But when you start a garden, it means you want to stick around for a while. I'm not saying that the Garden of Eden was the great precursor to the American suburb, right? But there, there is this idea that God... Putting a garden there, planting beautiful trees, vegetation for them to eat. The only reason why he would do that is because he was planning on being there for a really long time. He wanted to be there with Adam and Eve, dwelling with them, giving them full access to himself. So from the beginning, from Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God, his intention from the start was to be with his people forever. To have his presence there, unhindered, unmediated presence there forever for them to enjoy but in the next chapter, Adam and Eve, they believe the lie of Satan who questions God's goodness. And instead of being satisfied with being with God forever, Satan tricks them into thinking that they should want to be God. So instead of wanting to be with God, Satan tricks them. They want to actually be God, right? That's the whole, that's really the, the origin of all sin. It's our discontentment with God's unmediated, unhindered presence. And instead, we want to be our own God. We want to set our own agendas, live our lives the way we want to live and from here on out, humanity enters a, a downward spiral of self-destruction. Everything from this point on is just downhill. Every passing generation is, is fleeing from the presence of God. And God, chapter after chapter, book by book, God is trying to reverse that trend. Instead of fleeing from, the, from, from God, God is now chasing after man because he still wants to have his presence there, but he can't because he's an infinitely holy God and because we're completely sinful. God can no longer dwell unhindered with his people. Little by little, God starts to break into history. You know the story of Abraham, and he creates a people for himself, Israel. He gives them the Ten Commandments, gives them the law, and part of the law was this thing called the tabernacle. Do you remember that, um, the big tent that they set up? Um, there's a whole, there's multiple chapters just explaining the exact parameters of what this tabernacle should be. But that's, that's just a temporary kind of situation that gives way to the eventual temple, which is more of a kind of longer-term situation there with the temple. Um, and what that was is it, that would mediate the presence of God. So the, the, the holiest priests would, would purify themselves. There's this whole process that they got to go through. And 
they then can enter the middle part of the sanctuary of God, the, the most holy place. And that's where they could offer sacrifices. And only then would God's presence then come down and dwell among his people with Israel. But even, even Israel, even people back then knew that that was only a temporary provision. That, w- that itself, the, the tabernacle and the temples were, were pointing towards to something more permanent. They didn't know what it was at the time. In hindsight, we know that that was Christ, of course. But then they didn't know what that was going to turn into. They just know that this temple is just here as a, a temporary mechanism to point us to something else that will eventually come. And then we get to John chapter 1, verse 14. You should still have that in your Bibles if you could just turn there again. John 1.14. And, and the word there, for God made his dwelling among us, that word for dwelling is literally the word tabernacle. God tabernacled among us through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who was the word eternal, made flesh. God now tabernacles in this person, Jesus Christ. And that's, that's basically the gospel message right there. It's, it's forgiveness of sins for those who place their trust in Christ. That's how we're able to now get access to Christ. We were cut off because of our sins, but now because of Christ, no longer sacrificing animals and entering the most holy place, Christ is now the sacrifice, and he makes his presence now available to all who believe in his name. And the gospel is not... The gospel is not just fire insurance, something that we believe in just to kind of slip into heaven. But the gospel, it's, it's not less than that, but it's definitely more than that. The gospel is how we can gain access to a most holy God, how we can actually be in a relationship with him. And that's the greatest part of the gospel. It's that God wants to bring us into his presence to dwell with us. And this is why the gospel is, is good news. It's because it gets us to God. Dwelling, the word dwelling, it's um, interchangeable with the phrase to be with someone, right? I kind of touched on that at the beginning. To be with someone, that's, that's Jerry Maguire's universal longing. That's our universal longing, right? And I, I did a quick um, Google search for uh, the lyrics with you in um, American pop music. And there's a Chris Brown song called With You. And um, I was going to have Holly come up and uh, just sing that for us. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But... Um, that song, With You, by Chris Brown, was number one in, in the top 40, right? And if you don't know that song, you know, it's, he, he kind of explains how he doesn't need cars, he doesn't need money, um, I don't need cars, girl, you're my all, right? And um, then he starts just repeating with you, with you, over and over again, like 15 times, literally like 15 <laughs> times um, in the lyrics. And that's, I think that's, um, that's really the narrative of our culture, it's, the, uh, the narrative of wanting to be someone, thinking that that's going to ultimately fulfill us. And there is a role for human relationship, obviously, that's in God's created order. Um, but it, it, makes, it makes the idea of companionship, uh, specifically opposite gender companionship, kind of the ultimate uh, solution to our deepest longing. But we all know that that's not the case. Once we move beyond John chapter 1, I, it's, um, this theme of God dwelling among his people continues, and it just gets ramped up um, all the way through Revelation. And um, this is the last point I'm going to make on this um, topic, this little trajectory that I've traced from Genesis. But in Revelation 21, I, I think this is incredible, but in Revelation 21.3, it says this. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it for us. But I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, 
They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. It's, it's that same language of God dwelling with his people forever that starts in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and now flows through this trajectory all the way through Revelation. And here it's realized again in, in Revelation 21, God's unhindered, unmediated presence now dwelling with his people forever. Revelation 21, verse 22 says, and John, who, who's the author of this, he says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. There is no need for a temple anymore in Revelation because God's unhindered presence will be there for all of us to enjoy. There is no mediating agent for us anymore. God's unhindered presence will be there for all of us to enjoy. There is no more temple in that heavenly city because God himself will be there for us to enjoy. And this is how the Bible ends. It, It gives us this incredible vision of God dwelling with his people all the way through the course of redemptive history. And this is where all of our yearnings for that deep intimacy ultimately find their end. There's no more pain, no sin, no death to break our hearts. All of our tears will be wiped away. All our grief will be erased because in the presence of God, that's where we're made whole. We can now experience this in part, but only then can we experience this in full. St. Augustine, this is one of my favorite quotes. He says, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. One day, one day we will rest in the presence of the Lord, and this is the great hope that we can cling on to. So I've zoomed out. I've kind of given a Genesis to Revelation um, context for this verse. Now I'm going to zoom in to John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Glory, glory is one of those terms that we often hear in the Bible um, that's easy, to, I think, to, to describe, but um, e- easy to describe with kind of one-off descriptions, but it's hard to have a kind of a comprehensive definition of it because glory, kind of by definition, is indescribable. But I'll, I'll just give you a few snapshots of what, what I think glory is. It includes God's um, holiness, his, his complete set-apartness, his complete otherworldliness, his otherness, his perfections, no sin, no shortcomings, no limitations, no flaws, his beauty, his grace, his mercy, his compassion. He is um, he's awesome in really the truest sense of the word, awesome. It's, it's really what, anything that's praiseworthy, that's all encapsulated in the person of God. And to know who God is, is is really to know who he is in all of his glory. That's that's how we can know God and see God. It's really by seeing his glory. He's he's summarized in his character by by his glory. But but what does that mean? Like, what does it mean in that verse when when John says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son? How How can we actually see the glory of God? Um, growing up, I used to have this idea that the glory of God in Christ meant that he kind of like levitates. And um, you know that picture where he's got like a halo um, behind his head? And he's kind of like glowing in the dark, right? That's the picture that I had when I, when I thought of the glory of God in Christ. But what does it really mean? And why does it matter to us 
how can we actually see the glory of Christ if we're not actually walking the same land that he did in first century Palestine? How can we actually also see the glory of Christ? And for, for that, if you could turn to Exodus chapter 32, that's the second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. Turn to, Genesis, ex, turn to Exodus chapter 32. I'm, I'm just going to um, highlight a few verses from chapter 32 to 34. So if you could just kind of follow along with me, I'm going to pick um, a few verses here and there. But what happens is in Genesis 32, remember the scene with the golden calf where you know, God, God delivers them from, um, from bondage to e- Egyptian slavery. He rescues them. He pulls them out. He shows them a number of miracles. He, he parts the sea, and, and the Israelites pass through the sea. Amazing dem- demonstration of God's power. And literally soon after, the Israelites, they turn to other gods. It's, it's pretty ridiculous. They, they start turning to other gods, and they make an idol in the form of a golden calf in chapter 32. And God, and both God and Moses, are, are furious. They're furious. God destroys thousands of people. He strikes them with the plague as a punishment for adulterating themselves to other gods. And if you have your uh, Bibles open, Exodus 33, verses 2 to 3, says this, I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. So even though Israel fails and they create this golden calf, God still remains true to his promise, his covenant, to give them the promised land in Canaan. But he says, my presence won't go with you. I'm not going to give you my tabernacle or my temple to go with you. You can enter the promised land because that's what I promised you, but I will not go with you. My dwelling will not be there with you. I think many of us might be happy with that situation. We, We can get a lot of the great things that God can give us, without having God kind of step in and impede himself on our personal lives and kind of make demands of us and tell us what to do. We can enjoy everything that God gives us without actually having to obey some of his more stringent demands. And taking that one step further, if I could just offer this question, it's one that challenges me a lot, but if, if I were to offer you heaven, you get all of the earthly pleasures you experience now in its most purified forms, you get all the greatest foods and enjoyments in this life that you've ever had. You can't have that all in heaven as well. There's no pain, no sickness. You get a glorified body. You can be like the angels in your glorified selves. Um, you can have all of that. Every other pleasure imaginable that you ever desired or dreamt of in this lifetime, you can have it all in heaven. But if there was no God there, if there was no Christ, would you still desire that heaven? Would you still want it? And if, if I'm honest my, with myself, I, sometimes I wonder, would I really want that situation? I th- feel like in my weaker moments, I would still want that place, even if God wasn't there. Not, not with Moses, though. In, in chapter 33, verses 15 to 16, if you can read that with me. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me from your people and from all other people on the face of the earth? Moses is basically saying, even if you give me the promised land, the thing that you've promised to generations before me, if your presence won't be there, I don't, I don't want it. I don't want to be there. 
I mean, what, what is really the point of heaven if God's unhindered presence won't be there? Even if we have all the pleasures of this earth purified, everything that we've ever dreamt of, if we had that in heaven but God is not there, why, why would we want that? And this is what Moses is saying. If your presence does not go with us and dwell with us in the promised land, I don't want to be there. Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, if you could turn there, it says, And Moses asked God, show me your glory. He, he wants to now experience God in his fullest form. All of God's splendor, all of his majesty, Moses wants a taste of it. But God replies in the verse after, I will make my goodness pass before you, but you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. God hides Moses in the cleft of a rock. You might be familiar with the story. God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock, and God's glory then passes by. And as God's glory passes by, he says the following statement, The Lord, Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He basically lets only the good parts of his glory pass Moses by, and he shows him his metaphorical back so that Moses doesn't die in his presence. That last phrase, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that's, that's paralleled in, in our verse that we have this morning, John chapter 1, verse 14. We've seen the glory of Christ, the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That phrase, grace and truth, is really the same phrase as the one that we find in Exodus 33, steadfast love and faithfulness. It's, it's allusion to this Exodus 33 passage. It's, it's a formula. You know, when you see those two words together, they're not discrete, discrete words that are, are synonyms, but it's, it's really like a formula. Like when you hear, um, you know, peanut butter and jelly or, um, you know, um, Batman and Robin, when you hear one and the other, you know that there's something deeper underneath that gives it its meaning. That's what that full of grace and truth is referring to. It's referring back to this passage in Exodus 33. You see, God can't show Moses all of his glory because Moses is sinful. And if God shows him his glory, Moses will perish. Um, there's a scene from uh, the movie X-Men. I know there's a lot of um, comic um, junkies in here, right, someplace. But there, in the movie X-Men, there's a scene. It's a really kind of strange, obscure scene. I don't know, you might not have seen it, but this character named Jean Grey who has like um, these incredible mental powers. She can read people's minds. She can manipulate them into doing whatever she wants. Um, she dies, and then she comes back to life. As you, this, These facts might not be correct because I'm not a huge comic guy, but I think you'll get the gist of what I'm saying. So Jean Grey comes back to life as a phoenix. Um, phoenix or something? Yeah, dark phoenix. A dark phoenix. And she's got like these incredible powers now. She's even like... She's like a hundred times more powerful than she was before. And even before she died, she was extremely powerful. And she comes back to life as this dark phoenix with ten times more power than before. But the only problem is that she's like out of control. Like she just can't control her powers. And there's a scene where all the X-Men are coming up um, to confront her. And she's like, they're not sure if this is like the good Jean Grey or the bad Jean Grey. And they're kind of like scoping her out. And she just starts like levitating off the ground. And like um, it's just like this crazy scene where everyone starts like disintegrating. And um, it's a really random example. I just thought of it right now. But, like, <laughs> I, was, um, I was just thinking about, like, what it means to be in the presence of a holy and infinitely glorious God and, like, what would happen to us. I thought of that X-Men scene with Jean Grey um, and, like, people disintegrating um, all around her. I mean, I, that, that's kind of a picture, I think, of what it means to be in the presence of a holy God as a sinful people. 
we would just be completely destroyed. So, um, so God has to hide Moses in the cleft of the rock, and then he lets his goodness pass by, right? And, and Moses may not know it at that time, but, um, but God is basically like preaching the gospel to him in that moment. He's, he's basically saying, Moses, you, you can't actually, you don't even know what you're asking for. You want to see all of my glory, but you don't know what that means. If I were to show you my glory, you would completely disintegrate. And, and, and Moses, that, this is why I need to hide you in the cleft of the rock, because I can only let my goodness pass by you. I can only let my grace and my favor and my said steadfast love pass by you, and you can't see my wrath and my anger lest you be destroyed. And here, finally, we get to John chapter 1, and this is exactly what the gospel is. We are hidden, we are, we are hidden in the blood of Christ. Just as Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock, we're also hidden in the blood of Christ. And this is the only way that we can experience the glory of God. It's through the person of Christ who covers us with his blood so that we can only experience God's goodness and not his wrath, not his anger. Um, Christ, Christ is really in every single chapter, even of the Old Testament. Moses doesn't know it himself, but, but Christ is there. Christ is that rock that's hiding Moses so that God's glory can pass through and that Moses can now experience the presence and the glory of God. This is also why the gospel is often called the gospel of the glory of God because to see God's glory is really to know that message. It's really to know, love, and savior and savor the, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's why it's called the gospel of the glory of Christ. Here's a person who was so perfect, so holy, so beautiful, and so gracious in his life and his, and his death that he's a living example of God's glory, God's manifestation and it's because of the cross that we're not consumed. It's because of the cross that we're not destroyed. And God's goodness can now pass us by and we can live in it. I am, um, just a couple more points, but if you can turn to Exodus 34, Exodus chapter 34, verse 9. And I think this is really the... Um, Maybe the, the climax of this verse. Of course, it's when God passes by and shows Moses' glory, but it's really Moses' reaction to that that um, I think indicates something really powerful. In, in Exodus chapter 34, verse 9, it says this, Lord, this is Moses speaking, Lord, if I have found favor, favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. The reason why that's important is because, remember, the promised land is supposed to be their inheritance. Israel is supposed to inherit the promised land of Canaan as their inheritance. That's what God promised way back um, to Abraham in Genesis 12. He promised that he would give them land that they can make their home, and that, that's where God would dwell with them. And that's, that would be their inheritance. That's what they were all waiting for. But, but Moses, Moses just sees the glory of God, and, and he says, he doesn't say, Lord, now give us our inheritance, give us the promise. And he says, Lord, take us as your inheritance, take us as your inheritance. It doesn't even matter to Moses whether they get the promised land or not, or whether they get their promised inheritance. All he wants is to be God's inheritance. He wants to be owned by God. He wants to belong with God and, and to have God's presence dwell with him, 
It doesn't matter if he gets the promised land or not. He just wants to be with God. And here we come, we come full circle um, to that video that I showed early on with Jerry Maguire and Rod hugging it out and crying on each other's shoulders. When Rod comes out of that locker room, he just scored the winning touchdown. He comes walking out. He, he's mobbed by the media. They're all rushing to him. They want to interview him for scoring the winning touchdown. And you might expect that he would bask in, in all the attention, but he's only looking for Jerry, right? He, he's, where's Jerry? Where's Jerry? He's looking through the crowds trying to find Jerry. All he cares about is his relationship with Jerry. Moses, even though he's offered the promised land, doesn't claim his inheritance. He says, Lord God, take us as your inheritance. I don't care if I get the promised land or not, but I want to be taken as your inheritance. I want to be owned by you. Applying that to ourselves, what, what is it that we want? What's, what's our version of the promised land? It could be a relationship or material wealth or success. What is our version of the promised land? And would we rather have those things over the presence of the living God? Are we like the prodigal son where we demand from God to give us our inheritance, to run off with it, away from the presence of God? Or, or do we want to return to God, forsaking any riches that this world could offer so that we can be fully known and loved and understood um, in relationship with God, communing with him forever, complete intimacy and vulnerability with this one God who knows us from head to toe, would we trade everything that we could possibly get in this world and in the next one for the presence of God? Those of you who have tasted um, the presence of God know that it's not a contest. There's really nothing that compares to the presence of God. And there's this old song, um, old song poem that I love, and I'll read the lyrics. Um, I was thinking about singing it, but Holly told me don't do that. Um, <laughs> I'll just read it for you. It says, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. Yes, I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. I'd rather have Jesus than worldly applause I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. And, and just to close, just a quick point of uh, application I asked the question of how can we see the glory of God in Christ? Since, since Christ isn't physically present with us, how can we experience um, the presence of God? In, uh, in John chapter 1, verse 14, Christ is called the Word, and that's intentional there. He's called the Word because in, in communication, the way that um, we reveal ourselves to other people is really through our words, isn't it? Uh, when Holly and I were long distance, she was in Australia. I was living in New York at that time. And we're not like sharing, ex for half of our relationship, we weren't like sharing experiences together. We were only like talking. Um, 
And uh, that was really the only way we could get to know each other. It's through the words that we were speaking to each other through Skype or, you know, Google Hangout or whatever it was back then. It's only through the words that we were able to express our character, our desires, our, our ambitions, our goals, our feelings. All of those things really just came through in our words. We couldn't really, we, you know, we couldn't really sense body language or there's no experiences where you could really watch the other person's behavior or reaction to certain things. It's, it's really the words um, that I think... Um, push the relationship forward. And, and that's the way it is with God, too. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 3.21, it says that the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Um, I think that's pretty um, compelling there. God revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. The, the way that God reveals himself to people is through his words. The, the way that people reveal themselves to other people is through his words. So, and it's really no different um, for God. That's, it's really modeled after the way God does things. And he reveals himself through his word. The climactic revelation of what God wants and desires and wills is in the eternal word, Jesus Christ. But it's also the scripture that reveals God's character, his desires, his, his presence, and mediates his presence to us. It's really through the word. And it's when we let the words of Christ through the words of Scripture dwell in our hearts that we're able to encounter the glory of God in Christ. It's, 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 not, it's not an experience that we can pursue outside of the Word. It's really through, every time we open up the Word, it's not like a list of do's and don'ts. It's not less than that, but it's far more than that. When we open up the words of God, um, God reveals himself. His person is, is revealed to us, and his glory shines on us. And because of Christ, Every time we open the word, God's presence, his glory can pass us by. And it's only his goodness that we see through the words of scripture. And that's, that's the point that I wanted to close with. If you want to see the glory of God, look to Christ, the, the word made flesh. And in our hearts, to have his word hiding in our hearts. And that's really how we're able to experience the glory of God. So please, please pray with me as we close. If you can um, just, uh, with me, examine our hearts together and those, those deep, deep longings for closeness and intimacy, uh, the, sometimes the emptiness that we might feel in our hearts and wanting to fill it with a relationship or some kind of experience, it's really our souls crying out to God, um, crying out for, for God to fill that. And even though we try to substitute him with other things, it's only God's glory, his, his unhindered presence can fill our deepest longings. So if you could pray with me and, and offer that up to God and ask him, Lord, this emptiness that I feel, won't you fill it with yourself? Let the glory of God fill my heart, my soul. May your presence be with us, be in our midst. You could just pray that prayer with me.